Good morning. It's good to be here. You know, I was asking a bunch of kids one time, if you could ask Jesus any question in the whole world that you would want to ask, what would that question be? A group of about, I don't know, 90, 90, 100 high school kids. And they gave in over 100 responses. And as I was looking at them, I was really pretty surprised at what they came back with. But what they came back with over and over again was simply this. What is God's will for my life? And to be honest, that's a great question. I, I was surprised by it because I thought there would be something else, you know, something more in their, in their world, something more with, like struggling with dating or something like that. But it was, what is God's will for my life? To be honest, I think it's one of the second greatest things you can know. First, I think the greatest thing we can know is Jesus Christ himself, right? Coming to grips with the fact that he's our Lord and Savior, that he loves us, that that God himself sent Jesus down to to die for our sins so that we can know life and new beginnings and be a new creation and decide all those different things. But, But this question is not insignificant. It's probably the second greatest one that we could ask of God. How is it that we can know your will? John Brodus, a guy, once said this. He says, success is knowing the will of God and being right in the center of it. And I think that's true. In Ephesians 5, Paul goes on to talk about this a little bit. He says then this, be very careful how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Now, just out of curiosity, how many of you think that maybe the days are just a little bit evil today? Anybody think that at all? The rest of you are in denial. Okay, good. (laughs) I'm going to read this again, though, in that light. He says, be very careful how you live, not as unwise. There's a lot of unwise people today, not as those people, but as wise. Making the most of every opportunity. We live in a culture where we let opportunities go by us the rate of speed, or the rate of the speed of light, it seems, at times. Making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Therefore, he says, don't be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. See, what Paul is trying to get across to us here is that God actually wants us to know what his will is. It's not some big secret. And so we start asking, why is it so hard then? Why has it been so much trouble figuring it out? Why is it so difficult? Why do I still not know? And I think part of the reason for that is so many of these misconceptions that get built into our culture and our understanding of God, even within the church. And I'm going to give you a couple things. I'm going to start this message with First, two things that God's will is not, and you'll recognize these just a little bit. First thing that God's will is not is God's will is not a feeling. My first year, I was right out of seminary, so I knew almost zero, you know, but I got out and I was a pastor and I was associate pastor at this church and a guy came in to my office and he wanted to talk to me. He was a prospective member of the church and he'd been coming for about a year and he was ready to, to make that plunge, you know, and he said, hey, but I got one thing. I feel like God is telling me that I should leave my wife and run off with my secretary. I said, well, that's not God telling you that. He goes, no, Pastor, you understand, I feel it. I feel like God is telling me to do that. I know it in my heart. I said, then your heart and your feelings are lying to you. Because God says he hates adultery. He says, you don't understand, Pastor. Pastor. I know it's right because I feel it's right. And he left. I can't tell you how many people I've talked to since that use that same rationalization. I feel it, therefore it must be true. And and we live in that society. That's what our postmodern society has built into us. I feel it, therefore I am. Or as a postmodern would say, I feel it, therefore it must be true. Don't confuse me with the facts. Those are your facts. 
not my facts. And you get into these crazy conversations where there is no ultimate truth, where there's simply, I'm okay and you're okay, because you can't agree on some just objective truths about the world. And so people will say over and over, this is okay, because I feel it's okay. But when you go to God's word, it says that it's not a feeling. It's not a sensation. It's not an impression. Some people even use this t- technique to kind of spiritualize it, right? They'll, they'll sit down. They'll get neutral. They'll let their mind go blank. They'll wait for an emotion, for an impression, for God to speak to them. The problem with this approach, even when you spiritualize it in that way, is that feelings are unreliable. They are highly suspect, and they come from a lot, of different way, a lot of different sources. They can be based on fatigue, on illness, on a TV show that you watched the night before, on a book that you read, on a sin that you don't want to stop sinning, like this guy, on a bad pizza you had the night before. The reality is, it might just be that you need some Pepto-Bismol, right? It's not necessarily that God is speaking to you. Feelings are just highly unreliable. You test all feelings with God's word. In fact, in Jeremiah 17, 9, it says, the heart is deceitful above all things. In Hebrew, that word for deceitful just means sick. And when you're sick, you don't feel good. And when you don't feel good, you get all kinds of feelings and emotions. I was, remember, I was in college, I was dating this girl, and she was sick. Things had been going great in our relationship up to that point, but I came in, she goes, you don't like me. So I just walked in the room. What are we talking about? But she was feeling all these things, and she said I didn't like her. I did like her, but she broke up with me while she was sick. I know you think there was something else going on, but I don't. I think it was just that, right? Anyway, moving on here. When you don't feel good, you can feel all sorts of different ways, all sorts of feelings. The devil himself even can make up feelings. It's a way to, to tempt. It's a way to stress our convictions to the Lord. And so God's will is not just a feeling. Like this guy, this gentleman that walked into my office my first year of ministry, you have to test those feelings against God's word. And if it's the exact opposite, you can know that your feelings are lying, no matter how much you may want it. There's another thing that God's will is not, and God's will is not a formula. This is kind of the mechanical approach. Follow this recipe and you'll get automatic results. Most books that you find in God's will today are actually of this sort, of this approach. And to be honest, we like this approach in our society today because we live in a push-button microwave society where we want everything instantly. We want everything now. We want the quick fix. Ten easy steps to God's will. We want a formula. And if you don't think we live in that kind of society, how many of you get annoyed by the length it takes for your computer to start up? Right? Do you remember the first computers? You could go get like coffee and a bagel at the store and come back and it would still be loading up. And yet we still get frustrated today because it takes so long. We want a formula. And the only sad part about this formula is that if you think God's will is a formula, then you have to follow it perfectly or you get bad results. We see this in a lot of things in our life. And we love formulas, but you know we're imperfect and we make mistakes and we make bad choices and we sin and we know these formulas in life we have several formulas that we try to follow to get these right results but because we live in the world because we're imperfect we never seem to get them or at least not the consistency we'd like when you follow a formula you have to have perfection there are no mistakes allowed and as a result it doesn't take into account our humanity at all if you mess up you're in big trouble i mean think about it let's say i married the wrong person 
And then the person that was supposed to marry me, they married a wrong person. And then on and on and on and on. There's no logic in that. Everybody in the world would be married to the wrong person for years, for centuries, for whatever's longer than that, you know, the thousand-year thing, millennia, right? For, if, it, nobody would be married to the right people. We wouldn't even be here because mom and dad wouldn't have been married to mom and dad. They'd be married to somebody else. The reality is that all believers make mistakes. C- can you imagine Moses coming and saying, man, I killed a guy. God, it's over. I, you can never use me again. And yet God did. Or, or David, not only did he commit murder, he committed adultery and mur- the the gal's husband on top of it so that he wouldn't get caught. Imagine him looking at that and saying, it's over, it's done, God can never use me again, and yet you read the scriptures and you see that he did. It's the most incredible thing about God is that he doesn't live with us in our pasts, but he lives with us in our present. And it's not where we've been in our past, it's where our feet are headed now that makes the difference, right? And so what you can know is that no sin is unforgivable by God, that you can't out-sin his grace. It's the most incredible gift Jesus has ever given us, this great gift of grace, this get-out-of-jail-free card that doesn't keep us always in the past. God says, if you bring it to me, it is no more. We read the, the, during the confession, we said, he'll make us as fresh as um, freshly fallen snow, right? As white as freshly fallen snow. Any of you grew up in the Midwest, you know that's white stuff. There's a lot of other things that discolor that, but that is white stuff when it comes down. So God's forgiveness is complete and it's, it's amazing in his sight. And so if you are carrying guilt right now, stop it. Bring it to Jesus and let him forgive you so that you can move on. But also as a result of that, God's grace, God's will is dynamic. Because if God's will wasn't dynamic, we'd commit that one sin in our life. And how many of you guys committed at least one sin in your life so far? Okay. Yeah, the first service struggled with that. I think some of those were pretty good people, but they will sin, I promise you. It's in Scripture. Everybody sins. Um, but otherwise, that first sin that we committed in our life would keep us held in bondage. It would erase whatever God wanted to do for the rest of our life. But God's will is dynamic. It can take into account all of our mistakes, all of our missteps, all the horrible things that we've done, the sin. And God can still use us in our future. See, God doesn't live with us in the past. He lives with us in the present. And he says, you are forgiven. Go, my child, and follow me and serve me and sin no more. And he goes on and on and on. And so if we look at this, if God's will is not a feeling and it's not a formula, then what God's will is is a relationship. It's a friendship. It's, it's a relationship. In 1 Corinthians 1.9, it says this, God is the one who invited you into this wonderful friendship with his son, Jesus Christ. And so God's will is not rules, it's a relationship. God's will is not a life map, but a lifestyle. It's the way that you live. It's not an agenda, it's the attitude that we have toward Christ. And to be honest, there's a lot more freedom in God's will than I think most of us give him credit for. To be honest, if we're deciding between the red and the blue car, I think God's up in heaven going, you know, I, I just don't care. I mean, get, get, get whatever one. I, I don't even care. Get the Civic, get the Honda, get, right, they're the same thing. Get the Toyota, get whatever it is that you want to get. There's a lot more freedom within God's will that I, than I think we give him credit for. Right, even, even stuff like this, as we go through life, do you want to sell the house? Do you want to rent the house? I, I think in most cases, God gives us a wide breadth of things that can still be within his will. Does that make sense? If it's not sinful, if we're not going against him, if we're not trying to thwart what his call is to us, there's a lot of things that fall within God's will that can still be okay. So many people try to define him and saying, no, I need his direction. 
is it this cream car or this white car? And I just think God says, whatever, you know? Buy the one you want. In many situations, there are many more choices that you can make, and all of them would be part of God's will. And so if God's will is based on our fellowship with him, this friendship with him, then developing a relationship with him, then it's our attitudes toward God that becomes so crucially important. In fact, there are three attitudes that I think cause us to miss God's will more than anything else, and you'll recognize these as well. And one of the first ones is fatalism. And so God says this to us. He says, stop being fatalistic about my will. And this is the attitude that says what will be will be, or better yet, it happened so it must have been God's will. Have you ever heard anybody say that the most horrific thing happens, filled with just horrible stuff, and they say, well, it must have been God's will. I mean, that's why the mass murderer killed everybody. I mean, it must have been God's will, or he wouldn't have let it happen. But that's fatalism. That's saying that we are bereft of choice, that all is designed by God, and that he doesn't leave us anything else. It's an attitude of resignation. They assume that everything that happens in life must be God's will. But it's not true. There are some errors in this thinking. The first one, the most blatant one, is that it's unfair to God. If everything that happens is God's perfect will, then God gets blamed for all the bad and horrible and sinful in this world. But if something good happens, what do we say? <laughs> lucky. Yeah, so lucky it's all the credit for all the good. But if something bad happens, it must have been God's will. And so God gets blamed for the bad and luck gets blamed for the good, but it's not right, it's not scriptural, it's not true. The Bible has made it extremely clear that God's perfect will is not always done here on this earth. In fact, there's a name for it. He calls it sin. Sin is the exact opposite of God's will. Sin is rebellion. Sin is hatred toward God. Sin is going right when God said to go left. Sin is the exact opposite of his will. And so if you see a situation where somebody was raped, it wasn't God's will. If you see a little kid getting hit by a drunk driver, it wasn't God's will. If at your work somebody's talking behind your back and calling you all kinds of horrible names, it's not God's will. Those are sin. Sin God hates, he says. And so we've got to stop blaming God for all the sin in the world. He created a world that was perfect, and we muddled it up and even brought in original sin. Sickness is not God's will. What is his promise, though, is that he will work all things. Now, all things is an interesting phrase. All things, does that include, does that include when uh, I've tried to raise my kids to the best of my ability, but they don't listen to a thing I say? Yeah. Does that include when a kid gets hit by a drunk driver? Can God somehow bring good out of that? How about an addiction to something? Does it include something like that? A complete rebellion, continual rebellion against God? Yeah. See, the extraordinary thing about God's will is promises that he can work all things for the good of those who love him. And so we don't want to get fatalistic. God gets blamed for so much, but here's the deal. If God's will were always done, then this world that we lived in would be perfect. It would be heaven. That's why we pray in the Lord's Prayer, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In heaven, it's done perfectly. On this earth, it's a mess. It's not done perfectly at all. And so stop blaming God. Look forward to the promise, but stop blaming God. There's a second thing, too, that complicates this fatalism, and it's that it's unhealthy for you. 
When I get fatalistic, this attitude is fatalistic that whatever happens is God's will, that I'm a puppet and I'm not a person any longer. God's just sitting up there pulling the strings. And what this fatalistic attitude does is it robs you of one of the greatest gifts that he's ever given you, and that is the freedom to choose. That fatalistic attitude tends to promote self-pity and passivity, which our culture loves. We love playing the victim today. If you don't believe me, turn on the news. If you don't believe me, listen to your friend. One of your friends complain about their life. We love to be victims. It's always somebody else's fault. We try to take the blame off us as quickly as possible so that we can blame somebody else. I didn't have a choice. It was God's will. And as a result, we pass the buck and we say that if anything happens, it's God's will. It's not our fault, you know, that we did this. It's God's. It's like the parent that makes all the decisions for his or her child and never lets that child make a decision of their own. They're dooming them. They're setting themselves up to have a child that is completely immature and is going to struggle in life until life whacks them upside the head. But God wants you to grow. And so he lets you make choices and even... He allows us to make wrong ones at times because it's all part of the growing, the learning process. It's like learning to walk. You ever watch a kid learn to walk? It's awesome, right? They get up, they fall down. They get up, they fall down. They get up, they fall down. They get up, they bang, bonk their head. That doesn't deter them either. They will get up a thousand times. No matter how much they hurt themselves, no matter how many times they fall, they are undeterred. But that's part of it. That's how you learn to walk. See, God wants us to learn how to walk as well. He wants to help us learn how to trust. God wants to get us to a point in our life where we can make decisions like Jesus would make without him having to write everything in the sky that's called maturity. But you can't mature if you're continually stuck with this fatalistic attitude toward life, if you're continually playing the victim because there's ever any personal responsibility. And here's something. When you go to heaven and you stand before his throne, you don't get to blame everybody else for how your life is hard. You don't get to blame anybody else for the decisions that you've made. You own them all before God. You know, my parents are awesome. I love them. And I've, they taught me the right thing to do in every situation, right? They're awesome parents. I did not always do the right thing in every situation. I don't blame them for a single sin that I've ever committed in my life. I don't blame them for a single bad step I've ever taken in my life. I knew it was wrong when I was doing it. Because they told me. We've got to stop blaming everybody else and own some of our own stuff. But we get caught up in this fatalistic thing. We, culture embraces this idea of victims and it causes us to misunderstand God. Second attitude that complicates our view of God's will is this, fear. So God says, don't be fearful about my will. For many people, even the subject of God's will, though, tends to frighten them. They start to be defensive. They start to run from it. God says, don't be afraid, though. I sent Jesus to save you, not to scare you. But we get afraid. We get afraid when we pray to the Lord, thy will be done. And it's a scary sentence, if you mean it, for a lot of us, regarding our work, your marriage, your children. It scares a lot of people. You say, look what happened to Pastor when he prayed it. He's Pastor now. You know, we get nervous about it. Will it change my life? But God says, don't be afraid. Even the angels, when they came down and the shepherds were freaking out, what did they start with? Do not be afraid. And it shares the greatest news ever, right? And so what are we afraid of? Most of us are just afraid of change. What if God changes my lifestyle? He may. What if somebody criticizes me? What are other people going to think if I sell out to his will? 
We're afraid of commitment. What if I decide that I really want to follow God's will and it makes it too hard and I don't want to do it anymore? But here's the root of all those kind of fears is that we really doubt that God has our best interest at heart. If we believe that, we'd be running like, woohoo, let's just go. We wouldn't care where we're going. We're just like, God's got it. God's directing it. God's going to get me to a great place. But we doubt that. We're afraid that maybe God doesn't really know what's going to make us really happy. And it's because we forget, right? In Jeremiah 29, 11, he promises us. He says, I know the plans that I have for you, says the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope in a future. It's obviously perfected that promise and completes that promise when we're in heaven. But that promise is for us who believe. And so he says, don't be afraid. And then there's this last thing that complicates our vision of God's will, and it's this. We're frustrated. So God says, don't be frustrated about my will. And I think this is where most of us are today. We're frustrated because things don't seem to be going as planned. We're we're overloaded by the stresses of life, hence the series that we've been doing. And frankly, we want answers. You want to know that there's a purpose. In Romans 8.28, again, he says those words, Paul does, we know that in all things, and that includes everything, does it? My own mistakes. Includes when I'm an innocent victim of somebody else's harmful decision. Includes instances that are beyond my control. We know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. And so no matter where you are, you can know that all things, God works in all things, not even the crummy things, even the horrible things. He can work all things for the good of those who love him. doesn't mean those horrible things were God's will. It just means he can pick us up out of them and work something good as a result. See, ultimately, the right attitude has always just been faith. In Hebrews 11.6, it says, Without faith, it is impossible to please God, because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. And so if you want to be in God's will, well, you can know this, that whatever God's will is, it's going to require faith and trust. It's going to require faith and trust if you want to follow God. In Psalm 119, verse 105, I've used this illustration before, but I just, I like it, so I'm going to use it again. This verse says, Your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light for my path. In the Old Testament and even the New Testament times, they did not have flashlights, but what they did have were these little oil lamps that they would actually strap on top of people's feet. And they'd light the lamps and they gave light as they walked in the dark. As they took a step, the lamp lighted that step. And as you took the next step, that next step was lit as well, and so on and so forth. It didn't give a high beam where you could see a half mile down the road like we have in cars today. It was a step-by-step enlightenment. And you know, I've always felt like that's kind of the way God's will works. He doesn't show us the next 20 years because, to be honest, I don't think, I don't think we could handle that. Not even the good stuff I don't think we could handle. But Jesus gives it to us in bite-sized trunks, chunks, and he says, trust me, Right? Trust me and I will get you to be where I need you to be. Trust me and I will be with you. Trust me and I will help you find peace for your life. Trust me, he says, over and over. In the Gospel of John, it says this, For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son, Jesus, and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. You see, it's in consequence to those words that Paul writes to us about God's will in 1 Thessalonians And he writes this, in light of all these promises, he says, be joyful always, pray continually, and give thanks in every circumstance, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. 
And so what is God's will? God's will is for us to trust him as we go through life. Trust him in the storms, trust him on the mountaintops, to trust him. And how do we trust or what do we trust? Is it our feelings? We take everything back to his word where he speaks to us again and again, where he promises that stuff to us again and again, where he shares his love, where he shares his direction, where he shares strength and peace and hope. To trust that he loves you because of Jesus. To trust that he'll take care of you because of Jesus. You know, if you think way back in Christmas, right? The angels appeared to the shepherds. The wise men came to baby Jesus. Mary and Joseph had this child of promise. And what were they all doing? They were trusting that because of this child, the world would never be the same again. They were trusting because of this child, their lives would never be the same again. It's the same for us 2,000 plus years later. Because of Jesus, we will never be the same. And because of Jesus, we can find a peace and a hope and a life that is greater than anything we could ever imagine. Thanks be to God for his amazing love. And all God's people said, amen.